Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Hey, Jason. Hey, Suzanne. <laughs> Hi. How are you all? Good. Great. Can you all do us... <laughs> Great. Can you all do us a favor and please introduce yourselves to our listeners? Okay. Um, <laughs> my name is Suzanne Kite. I make art under my last name, Kite, and I'm a composer, an artist, uh, I guess an academic sometimes, and I... Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Concordia University, where Jason is my advisor, one of my advisors, and I am currently living between Montreal and Tulsa, Oklahoma, and kind of on the road, so, yeah. Nice. I'm Jason Lewis. I'm a poet, uh, interactive media artist, and, uh, and an academic. I teach at Concordia University in Montreal where I'm the Concordia University Research Chair in Computational Media and the Indigenous Future Imaginary. And I run a couple of research efforts, um, one of them being the Initiative for Indigenous Futures. Uh, and uh, I am based in Montreal. I am from Northern California, however. Wonderful. Wonderful. So I guess, I mean, we have a ton of stuff to talk about. The original... Um, the original prompt, in a sense, was we've been recommended by a few people to check out a project you all have been working on, um, which is uh, called the Indigenous Protocol and Artificial Intelligence Working Group. Would you mind uh, giving us a little uh, rundown of like what that project is and kind of where it came from? Sure. So there's lots of ways to kind of describe how the how that group came about. So this is this is my way of telling the story. Um, uh, so, I, God, in 2018, I guess, in the winter of 2018, um, uh, I was in a conversation with Noalani Arista, who is a professor of history at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, and somebody who I've been in conversation with around questions of you know how indigenous culture gets expressed through digital media. And sort of the opportunities and the and the challenges of of working with these tools when you're when you're handling cultural knowledge, and uh, she brought my attention to a uh, uh, competition that was being run by the then director of the MIT Media Lab, uh, Joy Ito, uh, called "Resisting Reduction." And so this was an essay that he had written where he was trying to get his. I think really kind of Silicon Valley and engineering peers to understand that there are multiple ways of understanding the world and that the, the tech industry was really building itself along one particular worldview. Uh, and um, specifically, he was calling out the singletarians, so mm-hmm. the people who were uh, sort of kind of prophesying, but also seemed to be really waiting for bated breath for that moment when uh, our AI systems actually achieved you know, sentience or true intelligence or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and they could then upload, they could then upload themselves into these systems yeah. <laughs> and become, you know, become one, uh, one with the computational universe. 
So uh, he invited a bunch, he invited people to respond and, and wrap that up in a competition. Uh, and, um, you know, reading his essay, you know, made me think about a number of things that um, I had been working on for quite a long time at that point, you know, particularly looking at that question of, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean that we're, we're building these systems from a particular um, sort of epistemological standpoint? that comes from a, you know, particular genealogy of Western philosophy and, and science. <clears throat> and that this kind of crystallized, helped crystallize some of the things that I was thinking about. At the same time, I, uh, Suzanne had started the year before at Concordia. Suzanne, is that right? Yeah, yeah. fall of 2020. Yeah. And we had been having some great discussions around readings, looking at, um, you know, spurred by her interest in uh, in how to think about Lakota epistemology in relationship to her artistic practice, and in particular in relationship to the the tools that she builds to support her performance practice. And so, reading a lot about non-human relationships, about various indigenous traditions, and how they go about thinking through issues of relationality, um, and then also Archer Pachalis, who's the, the fourth co-author, who I've known since uh, since the late 90s, who has been thinking about these sorts of things for a very long time, since probably at least the early 90s, if not the late 80s. Uh, he's Cree and uh, and building uh, building performance tools and thinking about that same thing of like, how does he as a Cree person, how does he build these tools that come from such kind of an alien culture how does he build them in a way that serves the voice that he wants to create uh, coming from a, a Cree perspective? And yeah, and so sort of asked if, you know, if everybody was interested in, in writing a response. And uh, and they were happily. And so that we sat, we started the process of writing, making Kin with the Machines, the essay that we, we contributed as a response. And so that was just a really great, opportunity to be in conversation with, uh, you know, some smart people, technologically grounded, who, you know, took this question of, of the cultural core of digital technology, they took it seriously, coming from different perspectives. So Hawaiian, Lakota, Cree, because that was really important too, because there is no one indigenous perspective. There's not even one in, you know, Hawaiian or Lakota or yeah. Korean perspective. <laughs> um, you know, but but everybody could speak knowledgeably about what the what the possibilities are uh, within those cultural frameworks to think through these questions of what our technology is and how it gets built. And so we wrote the essay. It got uh, it got accepted. It was one of the ten prize winners. But in the converse, in the process of doing that, we thought, hey, this is a really fun conversation, really generative, quite interesting. And I and wanted to see if some of our peers would be interested in joining mm -hmm. and, and pushing that further. And also, you know, I think we all come from a perspective that we're conscious of the need to check in with our communities. Yep. Right. So whether it's like our kind of home cultural community or its professional communities, sort of under other indigenous people work in this area to see like, okay, is this just our own weird way of looking at this? Is this a series of questions that we should even be asking 
you know, what do other uh, people have to say about it? And that's when we started thinking about the workshops. And then uh, for complicated reasons that I can go into later if you want to, but basically ended up reaching out to Angie Abdilla, who is a Troll Woolley woman from, uh, from uh, Australia, and uh, O.A.V. Parker-Jones, who is uh, Hawaiian and was working as a postdoc at, uh, at Oxford. Uh, to put together a proposal to create the create uh, two workshops to bring people together from North America and the Pacific, Australia, and New Zealand to have this conversation, and uh, yeah, they gave us money, and, and much to <laughs> our surprise, uh, particularly it was a Canadian funding agency, and we were proposing to hold these workshops in in uh, Honolulu, uh, but they gave us the money, and we reached out to a bunch of different people who we either knew or we had heard about and thought might be interested in this question of how, you know, what, what is the relationship between indigenous knowledge and artificial intelligence? And, uh, and they showed up. And so we had, um, we had two days with about 35 people in the room, mainly indigenous. There was about five non-indigenous people that were part of the conversation that we invited in. And then uh, about 10 of us came back a couple months later uh, to Honolulu to do a writing workshop to, to start drafting up the texts that um, became the, the position paper that got produced basically and um, got published in August of this year. So that's sort of the kind of partially, you know, mainly the factual yep. way yep. that it came about for me, from my perspective. But I think like, you know, me talking about how it drew upon, you know, things that I've been thinking about and talking about for quite some time and really kind of, talking more explicitly about starting around 2000 after 2010 and then became even sharpened more sharp when uh, Suzanne, when I got into conversation with Suzanne, um, you know, there's everybody came into those rooms with, you know, long histories of thinking about these problems from one direction or another. Um, and what it seemed like is the, the kind of the, the object, the conceptual object of artificial intelligence provided us with a common way to actually articulate and express those ideas. Because there's not, part of my experience is, is that even though I've been working, doing this stuff for two decades or so, it's not often that I'm in a room with, you know, 30 other indigenous people who are both, um, you know, to some degree or another relatively, you know, culturally grounded and also interest, interested enough in computational technology that they want to spend that amount of time engaging with it. And so it was just an amazing opportunity for me uh, to have that conversation. Very cool. Um, this is maybe kind of a random question, but I'm sure there was a lot of points of um, agreement and and kind of um, coming togetherness. I'm curious what the points of disagreement were, or maybe if there were any kind of like surprising, um, yeah, ideological kind of oppositions that you came across. Yeah, maybe I'll throw in some of the ones that I remember clearly. I mean, the oppositions are what's what's interesting. I mean, when we talk about, I think one of the things that kind of I'm trying to put forward when writing different applications and things about this is that, you know, we want, I'm not sure why we would want singularity of anything because we know mm -hmm. what happens. It's like an, it's like intellectual and knowledge collapse when there's only one perspective. And so if yep. we want... If we want, if, and we don't want another AI winter, if we want to keep learning and growing, the diversity of thought is absolutely essential. 
And then, you know, I love being here on the West Coast because, you know, looking at um, nativeland.ca and looking at the extreme diversity of languages um, on the West Coast, just, you know, we, the language loss and um, knowledge loss that goes with it is completely tied to this, the, maybe the, I don't even know the epistemological urge to collapse into a single culture. Maybe it's a mm-hmm. race, maybe mm-hmm. it's a racism thing, but you know what? Being there with those thirty, only thirty people, when you know there's so many perspectives out there in the world. You know the when things were disagreed upon, that's when it's really, really important and interesting. And so some of those things were um, we talked about. Uh, what does it mean to? There's different projects about AI elders, but there's uh, we discussed this idea, and some people came to the point where they said that it makes them extremely uncomfortable. They could not imagine um, their community participating in creating an AI elder. And the other other mm-hmm. communities <laughs> said that, oh, we're, we've already made it. We're, we're making that right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is our, you know, that's the goal to have. And that we want to have it. It's going to be up a mountain, and you're going to have to travel to get there. And um, you'll be able to access, uh, you know, this AI amazing ideas, um, and and that's just one example of what makes one pe- one group of people extremely uncomfortable um, is perfect for another. And that, but then you know, as I'm thinking about like the extreme diversity of thought, you know, I think the goal here, to me, what I currently see this goal of the Indigenous Protocols and AI project, like long term into the future, is the you know, the ability to give, have people all have the tools, all of our people have all the tools to make their own um, tools that they need, technologies that they are in relation with and through to other sides of the, of the like, the spirit world. All of that is possible if you people have the tools to, each community can create their own AI. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I see because even in our, so even if I take, like the Lakota linguistics as the example, that's a huge amount of communities. And we even say, we have a different word for bowl as you go one village to the other. Um, okay. It's a basic okay. thing. So that's kind of, I really hope we have that. I, I hope disagreements can spur more knowledge, you know? That's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important is to create the spaces where you can have those disagreements productively. Yep. Um, so that they can be retained and can be worked on and can learn from each other. But even at the making kin with machine stage, uh, you know, and, and Archer talks about it a bit in his, his section, you know, he talks about having a dinner party uh, when we were still sort of writing it and mainly indigenous people from, you know, a number of different nations across North America and bringing this topic up and having some people, you know, at the table say, wow, that sounds like a really bad idea. Yep. Right. Like, you know, we 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 know we know how these Western technologies gets get used against us again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's just the genealogy of this technology coming out of the war machine. Yeah. So why would you why would you want to engage with that? at well, all? Well, actually, I, I, I think what I remember is that it was a Lakota uh, person who disagreed with Archer and. I wasn't, I wasn't going to name communities. <laughs> it was, it was and I actually approached him at a conference later and was like, uh, you know, curious. Uh, the disagreement was about how we should instead be concerned with 
uh, labor, um, human labor in like Amazon warehouses, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's where that's where the misunderstanding is, is because when, when we say AI, we are absolutely talking about the complete interconnectedness all the way down to our human and non-human relations, this extreme network. Um, that's, what, that's what we mean when we say protocols for AI. We mean all of yep. the constituent parts that go into it, human and non-human, labor included. Uh, so, you know, that I just was part, part one organizer of this resistance AI group and somebody was after us on Twitter because we didn't name and blame capitalism in huge letters at the top of our website. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's a, that's an absolute given. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really, I mean, that's really useful. And I mean, I think it's, it's when reading through, I was reading through the, uh, the making kin with machines, um, uh, essay earlier for a couple of things to point out that I, I'm just going to throw out, but, um, you know, the one thing that, uh, you explicitly reference in that paper is, I'll quote it, that, you know, the belief that man is neither height nor center of creation is core to many indigenous epistemologies, um, which I guess, it, you know, I mean, I have to, I have to concede coming from, um, yeah, I'm coming from a place where I am certainly not familiar with the various different nuances between different indigenous peoples, um, particularly on the issue of AI, right? This is a, um, but it, but it does seem really, it does seem really crucial. Like my initial hesitancy, in fact, even reading it was being like, and you covered this, but being like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to, in my mind, just have this idea that there is any one indigenous perspective on anything, right? Because that's kind of absurd um, uh, to collapse things in that way. Um, but it is quite striking to say that, you know, even though latent with all of the the, the stuff that you've published um, is like a strong, uh, a, a strong kind of thread of critique, there's also a lot in there that suggests that you're quite encouraged, actually, by the development of these technologies, um, which which I trust generally, generally speaking, like I tend to find that the people who are the most optimistic about things have the greatest capacity for critique of them because they've kind of thought it through, you know, but I wonder, you know, maybe for the listener, not super familiar with this, actually, what you just said, Suzanne was, was really helpful to be like, look, you know, when we talk about AI, we're talking about like full stack interconnected society stuff, society and beyond. But uh, yeah, like when approaching the topic of, of, of AI, maybe it would be useful for us to kind of really narrow down like what applications of AI were specifically maybe discussed in the group or maybe uh, are, are of interest in, in the research that you're doing? Okay. Um, so the, we only had, you know, there were only a few days we were together. It was very, sure, yeah. we, we couldn't get to all of that, but that's, that sets up all of the questions that are, re, that come back over and over and over. And, and I, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the we talked about the many levels of society or like in the extreme interconnectedness is part of our argument is that indigenous special I mean I can really just speak for what I know in my specific like my Teoshpae my family and um, beliefs uh, we you know we every single you know public statement ends with a pretty common phrase, Mataki Oyasin, like we are all related. And if that is the bottom mm. line of every statement uh, and you come back, it really helps to frame that ability to think about the whole. And so when we talk about like hope, I mean, it is true. We are pretty optimistic, more optimistic than I actually was before. 
And I, I, you know, I, I think I remain optimistic because of the ability to to actually see a, a path forward, but only, but I only see the path forward through our ontologies. I don't actually see a path forward if by, by, you know, just like we talk about abolition, we're not talking about reforming the police, reforming systems of oppression. We're talking about uh, changing them from the ground up. And so that's what mm-hmm. I, that's why I think on dealing with ontologies is absolutely essential. And so the other thing mm-hmm. that happened, like, I do think that, um, the number one part of protocol in my, in my section, how to build anything ethically is the consistent return to uh, community consultation, which is number one in any indigenous methodology, research methodology, community mm-hmm. conversation. And the other thing that has happened since then is I've tried to, I've been not tried, I've organized these. Um, uh, I want to find ways w- um, to workshop and, because I, okay, how do I say this? Needs are number one. <laughs> like uh, identifying need. We don't want to just make AI that is just like a, an AI, a generalized AI. Like we don't. I, I don't think it makes any sense to make something that doesn't address a specific need. And yeah. I think that's the next part of figuring out what community needs are and how AI can actually contribute to them in a healthy way. And and I. And I think that through some workshops with um, Alicia Wormsley, who's a black futurist, we're, we've been working together to think about how we can identify community needs. Um, and, 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 and I think that the one community need that I wish we could attack quickly is, you know, uh, why can't, why aren't we using AI to identify um, patterns of missing and murdered indigenous women? Why aren't we using AI to identify um, like serious community health concerns. Um, and it's all possible now. It's not a future thing. It's a now thing. So yeah, that's, yeah. 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 That's really interesting. I was listening to your talk earlier. I think it was called labor of love and we'll add a link to the show notes. Um, and in that you're talking about this project, how to build anything ethically. And you kind of outline, if I'm recalling correctly, almost like building blocks or frameworks for, for this kind of approach um, to build basically anything ethically. And you're talking about hardware, software, essentially anything. Do you mind just laying out some of those kind of building blocks for us? You mean the, uh, the, the like uh, confluences of into AI, the protocol streams? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not looking at it right now, but in the essay, there's a illustration by um, Kari Noe. And basically my argument is that uh, if we want to build something and we want to do it ethically, AI is just one example. And it seems to be the example that makes people rabid right now. So please, let's <laughs> do it. Let's figure out a way to do build things ethically. Um, and so then AI is in the center. Um, and there's many, many rivers of protocol that, that lead to building this one thing. And those can be any streams of protocol that it takes to make something in a good way. And that, that, that means um, governance, uh, the physical Thing itself, the physical computing device. Uh, that means the collection of, uh, of data. That means maybe IP is an entire stream. And then you zoom into that stream and there are the many steps that go to, to, to make that. Uh, the, the first step being consultation, identifying need, collecting raw materials. And these can have even more subsets of protocol. And we do have these subsets of protocol in our communities already. We already do these things. Um, to the best of our abilities, given our circumstances. And then the, there's so many steps. There's like 
algorithmic steps, I think. And then finally, the most important um, is the death cycle, which is probably the most ignored. Um, how do we, mm-hmm. you know, when we welcome something, that's great. And especially if welcoming requires transparency. But then if we can't have a way to to let something die in a good way, then we shouldn't have made it in the first place. So I really appreciate the death cycle inclusion on that because I feel like it's just this huge piece that's especially missing in our capitalist um, structure that it just, you don't think about the cost of throwing something away or of recycling something. It's just, it's not written into the cost of the item to begin with. It's this kind of huge gaping hole in the entire kind of calculation. It's funny because I mean, I I can definitely relate to to what you're saying um, a second ago, like, because in a sense, it feels like AI, which of course is a really complicated term and you always have to kind of put, um, put disclaimers next to that. In a sense, what it does appear to be an opportunity to do is if we're kind of in the process of building new systems for everything, then of course it's an opportunity to reconsider what those systems might do, right? Um, and of course the danger, of course, with... Um, the danger, of course, with with these systems that I don't think many people have fully got their head around yet is the capacity of these systems to execute what you would like them to is so much kind of more rapacious and rapid than previous systems that we've had access to that getting that right, like doing things the good way, as you as you put it, um, feels more urgent than I feel like most people uh, are, are are ready to give it credit for, right? Like, I mean, in the sense that we've, we've been dealing with this more in relation to kind of music, for example, right? So, um, and the, the, the analogy that we've been raising in music is to say that actually the, the way that most machine learning systems and music work are somewhat analogous to like uh, 20th century kind of sampling narratives, right? So this idea that you might be able to take something and then create something new out of it was fairly covered in like relatively kind of like analog or very kind of early digital processes in the 20th century. And yet applying that same logic to hoovering up really, really large data sets in order to be able to produce infinite music based upon um, that sample set is just exponentially more like more of a hornet's nest than the challenges that we were dealing with in the last century. And so the, the, it's kind of where I, I definitely resonate with what you're saying is it's kind of like you, it's both an opportunity to like really reconsider how we might do things. And the second part is it's an opportunity to really hammer home that we absolutely need to reconsider how we do things because this isn't a, you know, this isn't a test anymore. Like this isn't like a, this isn't kind of like a, a, a test run, right? Like once you set systems in place that are working that are working in such an extractive way, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to uh, to impede where they go. Well, I, can, I mean, I can't I can't talk really specifically to sort of like thinking about this through kind of the musical lens. Suzanne is much more capable of that than me, but I mean, I think one of the things that we're finding is is this this will to scale, yep. right? It is built into computational processes. You know, it's all, it's all based on abstraction, right? So how can you sort of abstract a pattern out of, out of some sort of system, you know, such that you can express it fairly, um, you know, fairly concisely. And then 
be able to use that over thousands and millions and you know billions of, of, of instances. And that, that just inherently contradicts you know, where, you know, many of these indigenous knowledges are coming from, mm-hmm. that it's not about, it's not about scale. It's about locality. It's mm-hmm. about what's happening in a particular <clears throat> territory and with a particular community. And, uh, you know, we've been dealing with this, you know, for a very long time. It's just that, like you said, computational processes allow us to do it much faster. They allow us to do it at so much faster and at such greater scale that it's no longer just kind of a stepwise change mm-hmm. right there's a there's a real qualitative difference that's that's going on and we we're not prepared we're not prepared to deal with it um and that's you know that's what we're that's part of what we're finding right now is you know we we ended up you know thinking about the facial recognition stuff and things like that as we you know we we shoveled all or not we they <laughs> shoveled all this garbage data yep into the systems without thinking like, oh, wait a second. Instead of, they're just like, oh my God, we now have access to all this data because yep. of, you know, Google or whatever it might be because of the web, basically, that, you know, they're just like, you know, kids in a candy store and we're like, okay, great. Let's just like dive in and grab it without anybody to stop, you know, stopping to think. Well, not anybody, like there's people outside the field who were warning about this, you know, years ago. Yep. Um, and social scientists who look at how this happens in other fields who, who were warning about it in the 90s even. Um, but, you know, getting this point, this, this idea of like, okay, if we just get enough of this data, then the system will kind of figure itself out and, and we get these amazing results but never taking the time to properly look at what that data is yep, um, because it's so big. And yep. so, and because it's not possible for a human to review that data. Yep. And so you're left with this, you're left with this conundrum of that, you know, the, the oil, you know, that that's driving the resource that's driving these things is fundamentally flawed, Yep. but they can't step away from it because it's only through this massive data sets through these massive data sets that the thing is, is, operational at all yep no it's true that's that's a really interesting analogy right that like this kind of the will to scale and this 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 will toward like generalizable technology which is of course the opposite of what suzanne you were mentioning earlier um where you're looking more specifically about like local uh, implementations of these things in a way it's kind of analogous to the current unsophistication of ml generally right like you know machine learning that like most of these most of these systems have no ability to causally uh, uh, understand the information that's happening, right? It's like these these systems are kind of brutish one-size-fits-all systems that, of course, they might be really good at producing in the realm of, say, writing or something like this, you know, uh, uh, the illusion of, 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 of intelligence or, or novel kind of uh, novel novel results that, 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 that can impress. But when pointed to uh, specific use cases in the real world, um, that level of unsophistication can often be be quite dangerous. Um, would you mind talking a little bit more about specifically? Because I, I, I'm I'm just operating on the assumption that um, people listening will know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to say facial recognition um, and uh, training data. Would you mind maybe maybe explaining a little bit what you what you mean by that so we can we can talk about it more? Sure. So something like facial recognition systems, um, they they operate by being trained on massive amounts of images of people's faces. Yep. Um, and there's different sort of 
details and the techniques that you can go about making this happen. But essentially, you feed you know millions of faces into the system, and the system slowly learns how to um, you know recognize what a face is, and then how to segment that out of a background, yep. um, and then how to match that up you know, with some, you know, with other faces, if you're trying to like match it, match one image or find somebody's face in a crowd, say at a stadium or something like that. And they, so it's different from the approaches that were taken previously that often in one form or another, you know, approach this by trying to teach the system how to um, sort of how to recognize a face in the way that you might describe a face. Yeah. Right. So you might say, hey, you know, a face, human face has a nose, two eyes, a mouth, you know, usually within this kind of, you know, size range, et cetera, et cetera. So those systems, you know, proved notoriously um, brittle in their own way because you were always kind of coming back to the specificity of the description that you gave it in the first place. So these new systems that are learning from, uh, from uh, processing all this image data is they're learning in a sense on their own, right? And they're learning at a very highly accelerated pace. Um, and they are learning by, you know, when initially, again, depending on the, the approach you're taking, but, you know, they're learning initially by by having some inhuman intervention. It's like, no, you thought that was a face, but that's not a face, yep. right? So take that out of your thing. Oh, that's not a face. Take that, that out. That's not a face. That Take that out. Um, and so until so they get to the point where they're really, really good, um, like kind of magically good, um, <laughs> given how difficult the problem was seen, say, even in the early 90s, right? It was seen as a really, really tough problem to crack. And then the machine learning techniques, which are actually based on statistical methods that were first developed in the 70s, mm-hmm. right? So the tech, underlying technology is not new. Right. What's new is the vast amounts of data and the processing power that's that's um, yep. using those statistical analyses. So, uh, so yeah. So you apply those statistical analyses, huge volumes of data at a very, very, very accelerated pace, and the systems are able to teach themselves what is facial recognition. The problem is that um, the data sets, the image sets that they are drawing from, you know, they, they you know they did a very Silicon Valley, American, Western thing, yep. which is they they sort of said, okay, we have this great thing, which is the internet. Yep. All kinds of images on the internet there that are free for the taking. We're just going to scrape the net. Um, and then there's also a couple databases, you know, image databases that they use. And uh, we're going to use that to feed and to teach these machine learning algorithms. Yep. But the problem is, is we know that the internet is, is you know, radically skewed towards basically sort of, you know, the West and, and people of European descent yep, yep, yep. Um, because of the history of how the technology is rolling out. So they train these machines in some sense to, you know, think of humans as, you know, white, well, first of all, white men, yep. because that's overrepresented, rep, overrepresented. Um, on the net and in these data sets, you know, but then certainly kind of white people. Um, and so you, you create a system that has a very particular, um, you know, concept is probably too lofty the word, but let's just use it. Yep, yep. Um, you know, kind of concept of what a human face is. Yep. 
right? And then this just gets replicated in all kinds of other machine learning contexts that have to do with humans yep. um, in particular, other, other um, domains too. But humans in particular, it's, you know, they have it around automated speech recognition. Yep. They have it around, you know, gate recognition. They have it around all sorts of other things. And it happens with, you know, finance, yep. you know, so or, you know, the notorious one from ProPublica is, you know, looking at uh, software that's being used to help set uh, bail or help set parole conditions. Totally. Yep. And of course, what they're doing is they're sucking up, they're sucking up hundreds of years of uh, data yep. from a judicial system that has been uh, biased from day one yep. against non-white males. Yep. Yeah, and you have, I mean, similar example, right, with this, like, quote-unquote, like, digital redlining, when you think about, like, you know, mortgage applications that, yep. where a bot is is giving you a rate or a loan rate based upon, you know, historical data associated with postcode or something like that, you know, which can give, I guess, again, when you generalize it, you know, can give this impression of being somewhat of a smart system. But when you're dealing with, you know, uh, uh, historically marginalized postcodes, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, like bad data produces bad outcomes, right? Um, and I think it's important to clarify that too, because I think, you know, for many people who aren't at all familiar with this field, you know, the first mythology that's easy, that's that's really important to shoot down is, you know, this idea of like AI being coming from nowhere, right? Like not being lit, like kind of the product of us uh, for all the good and bad of us, right? Um, and the second part being, of course, that, you know, at least because everybody, at least coming from a pop cultural context, has this idea of AI uh, implanted in their head as some kind of an autonomous system. The, you know, the, the absolute importance of emphasizing that it's the, you know, the, the distinction of the data that, that trains it and, you know, the, the kind of political battleground of where that data comes from and like what, what it's being purposed toward. And I think in a way that goes quite far to, to explaining in a sense how you all can be simultaneously quite, you know, optimistic, um, uh, investing certain ideas in what a, a, a purpose-based or need-based AI might look like for specific communities and also be skeptical, right? Um, because, and this is maybe a negative example, but on the topic of like um, uh, facial recognition, for example, I saw in The Guardian yesterday, um, a report came out suggesting that Alibaba Holdings has been um, offering certain clients um, facial recognition systems specifically trained to identify Uyghur people, right? Um and so in the topic of this conversation about, you know, bias, um, facial recognition, you know, uh, good or bad AI for, for want of a more sophisticated term, um, it's really important to clarify for people that no, no, it's very possible to train an AI to recognize, uh, you know, marginalized groups. Um, in fact, many people are doing it, right? It's not that the, that the bias in AI is kind of inherent to the, to the process. It's more how you deploy it. Right. And, and, and because of, and because it's how you deploy it, that's actually the opportunity for intervention, right? Like the opportunity for intervention is saying, we have these really powerful tools. There's just some problems that should not be generalized. I mean, we had um, Kate Crawford from uh, AI Now on the on the podcast uh, quite a while ago. Um, she was talking specifically about, you know, the deployment of some of these tools in criminal suits, right? Um, not, only, not only bail, but in, you know, kind of identifying, you know, identifying areas for the police to look at. And it's like quite clear that in those circumstances, you know, this kind of sheen or uh, presentation of AI as some miracle tool, um, 
needs to be dismantled quite quickly, right? Because it's quite clear that this stuff is nowhere near sophisticated enough um, to be pointed at, at, at processes that have such a direct impact. They're, you know, kind of life or death, ruinous circumstances for people. We're not there yet, which doesn't take away any of the cool things we might talk about or be optimistic about. Um, you know, listening and thinking about a bunch of different, different things about, um, you know, one of the things that comes up is now this example of GPT-2 and now GPT-3, uh, mm-hmm. the, it's built off the internet. So yep. the thing that comes up for me when, when we have these discussions is, so we're looking at machine learning and the idea or non-idea of AI, uh, but it's, there, they seem to be this, these really potent examples um, in order to talk about things that are so much more complex and troubling uh, but yep. uh, I think people distill them into AI and machine learning when I, I think exploring. So sometimes when we talk to people who uh, work on AI and machine learning systems um, for a living, they that's their field of expertise. They really shrug off the pop culture references to AI and to the future and um, uh Jason, I was in Jason's class for this. Uh, what's the title of your class again? Um, it's uh, the future imaginary. Future imaginary, uh, and the future imagine. You know, and it was actually working through the texts in that course that it became clear that the there's a really potent uh, possibility in considering ideas of intelligence, and I think. Mm-hmm that one of the big issues for me is uh, even the title, artificial intelligence. There's no, su- there's no such thing as man versus nature. There is no other, mm-hmm. there is no other nature. There's not, there's not, it's not outside of us in any capacity. There's no such thing as artificial. All things are part of this, uni- this world. Uh, and, and then there's, and then the, I, the idea of even putting intelligence on a platform is so culturally specific to not our cultures to, to, outside of indigeneity that it's uh, North American ideas and um, of, of our cultural values that to put intelligence on a, pla- on a pedestal is just, it's, it's just kind of ridiculous the more and more I think about it. So when we talk about, you know, AI, we're, we're talking about such a specific narrow mindset that of course it's going to create things like GPT-2, like the idea that we should ever even make that music can even exist without um you, it's like it's so narrow-minded i it's hard to even come across and even to talk about the way that data sets are are engaged with um it, the number the, the action that is involved the human interaction is the deletion of anomaly and mm-hmm. the conversation that comes up a lot when Jason and I are in conversation with Scott Benison Abandon, who's a colleague and uh, artist, uh, and Scott and I often talk about the paranormal and aliens. Always trying to drag Jason into the alien conversation. <laughs> and, we should go there. <laughs> and, we'll get there. <laughs> but it's a really, I mean, but we we just um, we were just listening to Leroy Little Bear, who is kind of a key philosopher in thinking through these ideas of non-human intelligence, and. You know, Leroy had a lot to say about anomaly. Uh, anomaly is mm-hmm. considered. We would have a different science altogether uh, if uh, I. Uh, this is a game I like to play with myself. Like, okay, so let's say uh, 
the Lakota were able to sit down and create a, a contemporary science without uh, without genocide being involved. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of science would we come up with? And listening to Leroy Little Bear, it becomes clear that the anomaly is so uh, precious and should be considered with the whole. And even even the practice of deleting anomalies seems like an important thing to ruminate on. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I, part of the thing, the, the, this AI thing, again, is like a conceptual object, just really kind of brings into relief all these different strains, you know, within that, that kind of Western tradition that are problematic, like the one that Suzanne's talking about, about how, you know, anomalies, it's actually, it's, it's sort of seen as this thing you have to overcome, yep, yep. right? Or you just have to abstract high enough that you don't see it anymore, mm-hmm. yep. and then you're good to go. Uh, and so I do think, and I, I may have, um, I may have misunderstood you, Matt, when you were talking earlier. Um, but I think that a, a big part of the project is arguing that it's actually not at the point of deployment, mm-hmm. right? It's it's at the fundamental level. I think mm-hmm. that's what you know Suzanne is talking about when it's about it's about ontology, mm-hmm. right? And it's about a really root, fundamental rethinking of the starting points, because by the time we get to deployment, it's, you're just, you're just doing bandaid fixes. Yep. Yep. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk about is, you know, is that these biases are not a bug, but they're a feature of white supremacy, right? So they're a feature of a complex set of interlock interlocking structures that, um, have been designed sometimes consciously, a lot of times subconsciously, you know, to privilege certain people over others, mm-hmm. but they're just so naturalized that we don't see them. But then when we get to the point where we have to, where we're trying to um, implement just intelligence, yep. that's when it's like, oh, actually we have to, we have to kind of make these things explicit. And one of the side effects that I like about what's happening is that it actually makes it a bit easier to have conversations around structural racism yep. with some people anyways, because it's like, look, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like, like these people, I don't think many of the people like doing these, you know, making these different systems are explicitly like I want to privilege white males. Right. I think a few of them are, but I don't think a lot of them are, you know, so they're just taking the world as it is running it through, you know, these algorithms. Yep. And then what gets spat out actually illustrates the racism that's embedded in that world. Yep. Um that doesn't necessarily have to do with any one particular person, right? Um, it's like, oh, well, okay, clearly this is structural because you just you just replicated it at a vast scale. This is really interesting. Okay, so we're kind of talking about two things simultaneously here. We're talking about how the architecture of the algorithms themselves are problematic in that removing um, anomaly and in their very Perfitting in their very architecture are are flawed. But we're also talking about how the data is also flawed. So if I can just pin, like um, dig into one of those um, first, and then maybe we can cover the other, because I think they're both really interesting and, and have different sets of issues kind of around them. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the issue of dirty data or you know just what, what to do with this issue of data. Um, so one thing that I like to tell people who are less familiar with AI, um, to, to kind of like illustrate it for people is that as soon as something is recorded in media, it basically becomes machine legible that then can be training a kind of like invisible system that they might never interact with. And this is something that 
um, kind of like um, pinged in my head when someone, I can't, can't remember if it was Jason or Suzanne, um, was mentioning this idea of cultural knowledge, the importance of locality and um, providence. And kind mm-hmm. of, rather than seeing this as something that's just kind of like raw data, but rather something that comes from somewhere. Um, and so this idea that not all cultural knowledge is really necessarily meant to be machine legible and reproduced and transmitted and kind of mined and taken beyond its original community. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, um, yeah, it, it brings up the questions around appropriation um, and and complicates them and makes them more prescient. So I was hoping someone could maybe speak to to yeah this this messy issue of data well i just want to add one thing on top of that and then there's also this 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 kind of you know the the conundrum in the sense where you know in the cases for example of um facial recognition systems uh trained in order to benefit you know those of european descent um or trained in such a way that over represents um people of european descent is it preferable for those systems to be better trained on everybody um, when they're being deployed in such unusual ways. And I bring up the example of the Uyghur people right there. And so you have like a Han nationalist um, uh, 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 society training. Well, uh, that goes both ways. I mean, then you have like autonomous vehicles that, you know, just don't recognize you as a human. No, absolutely. absolutely yeah. So, I mean, of course, it's a really, it's a really tricky it's a it, it's a really tricky area in that case. But can we start yes, with yeah. this? Sorry, I just said a lot of stuff. <laughs> but can we start with this idea of um, not not all data necessarily should just be available to everyone at all mm-hmm, times? Mm-hmm. Can we start with that idea? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just start off by saying that these are very inherent concepts to indigenous methodologies, indigenous ways of doing research of engaging Mm -hmm. communities. And uh, it is very well known concept within our communities that not everything is for everyone. And Mm -hmm. they're looking at this, looking at um, the historical record and seeing what knowledge was chosen to go away forever. Uh, It was a choice. Um, Some knowledge was meant to to be sustained and some things they said, you know, were not meant to be passed on anymore. Um, And I think that that is a value that is not very easily communic- like communicable to uh, outside of our communities. Uh, it's very clear that everything that everything in the world is possessable to some cultures, yeah. and and that is to me. I mean, if, if if your audience takes anything away from what I want to say, it's that it's to me it's an ontological problem. I mean, who is allowed to be a being? And if we yeah are creating any tool, anything, if we create anything in the world as human beings and we do not understand other things in the world to be um, capable of having their own inner intelligence, um, even things that seem super inanimate, um, we we need to understand that all things need to be respected. And it is, uh, and some ontologies do not allow for that. There's nothing about, it's a very, very, very root problem. So when you take that into data and you say, like, I don't care that nobody consented to their data being collected, I'm going to do it anyway. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is just to me um, the idea that you can all things are objects that are not a white man and therefore all things are possessable. And so then that's you explode that over the entire continent. That's where we get um, colonialism and imperialism and genocide and and slavery, and slavery of people for uh, um, for capital, and the enslavement of our non-human kin as well. So the 
you apply that to IP, there's so many people doing amazing things with indigenous IP. Um, but you know, if we want ethical things in the world, if we, um, that has to do that, you're absolutely right. It's cultural knowledge is, is lo, it's about locality. It's about, um, we, when we talk about the land, it's not in some woo woo way. It's in a very, absolutely very, it's a realist way. It's so super real. The land is real to us, even when we're removed from it and then land and our cosmologies and our ontologies and our philosophies and our linguistics, they all emerge from that, ab, that absolute connection. So, and that's where we get good things um, af- when you, so that's why things have to be um, local and you can't just, and so, and the last thing I want to say is these are, these are concepts of sovereignty. And so um, if we're allowed to actually be sovereign beings, then we, we won't have these problems as much. And uh, the last, and then lastly, I want to point towards Ashley Cordes um, wrote an amazing piece for the IPAI um, position paper basically proposing how um, her research into cryptocurrency uh, and can get people paid, proposing in the future maybe we could pay people for their contributions and then uh, get uh, reciprocality. Like there's a reciprocity is also a very important value. You know, if you contribute your, your data, you need to be compensated in a way that you choose. So I, that's I, super interesting. We should have a conversation with Ashley. It's very, yeah, very much up our alley. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I and I resonate with a lot of the things you said there. I mean, the, I mean, first off, when you're talking about like a particular way of approaching culture, I mean, the, it's funny. I, I, I think even in the talk that I gave with Professor Okadiji at the Hakebe, um, one of the points I was trying to make there is is drawing a line between like a kind of Lockean labor theory of property, right? That, which which was very much like the spirit that led to uh, the colonization of North America, right? There's this very, very specific idea that, you know, nobody owns anything and you get to claim ownership over something because you put your rake in the ground and you start to tend that land or whatnot, right? Which is funny, uh, drawing a connection between that original principle or original sin, whichever way you look at it, and this kind of very uh, common narrative that comes, it's kind of like a hacker ethos that's like underpins a lot of valley culture. And certainly, you know, when you start talking about data rights, um, larger organizations uh, like your Googles of the world, which is this principle of like, it, you know, it's easier to ask um, uh, forgiveness than ask permission, right? Um, and I forget the name of the woman who came up with that. She was like a, an original, uh, she worked for the U.S. Navy or something. Grace Locke, Grace Hopper. Oh, yeah. Grace oh. Hopper, um, I believe. Um, but this clear idea, and, and it's really, I think it's really interesting to to hear you say that um, this idea that not everything is meant for everyone is super compelling to me because, you know, as like a bit of like a, a, a backstory or whatnot, right? So, okay, we're, we're mostly coming from a music context. Um, and there is this kind of conflation, I feel, that often happens when thinking about, you know, 20th century subcultures of which we kind of live in the shadow, um, under which we live in the shadow, that all information being free for everybody or being available for people to do with that's, that information what they want was very kind of bound up with, you know, late 20th century kind of subcultural expression to such an extent that it is often presented as the default progressive position in many circles, right? Um, And one of my frustrations with that is that when you start looking at some of the stuff you were describing, like needing permission from, uh, from people to do things with what they've created or with their personal data, suggesting that 
for many people, it's not cool to like just take. When I've when I've presented those ideas in certain contexts, they can often like I often get the feeling that I'm uh, I'm assuming kind of a conservative position, or I often get feedback coming back to me where I'm like where they're like, well, no, unless unless you want everything to be freely accessible to everybody, that can't possibly be a progressive position. Whereas my counter argument is, well, you know, if that's your progressive position, then Google is really happy, you know, because actually these kind of uh, liberal entities that operate on these these ideas of, of freedom of information, one size fits all uh, platform or protocol uh, dissemination uh, that basically builds on top of the free labor and <laughs> and contributions of 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 a bunch of, of, of everyone, um, you know, they're going to be really happy with this idea that allegedly it's a progressive position, you know, to, to remove the so- like people's sovereign ability to own their stuff and have some say in have some say in what 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 their stuff contributes to, and also expect some compensation in return for the stuff and the value that they generate. Um, and I, I hope that sorry, that's a very it's a very uh, um, it's a very it's a very short way to condense quite a lot of points there. But I just want to say I'm really happy to hear you say that because that. Uh, I want to read more. I want to read more of the, of the people that you reference because I often find it to be kind of a lonely rock to stand on to suggest that everything being available to everybody with no questions asked is not necessarily the most progressive position. Well, you know, so I was professionalized in the valley in the nineties. <laughs> you know, I was professionalized in uh, um, a couple research labs that were that were filled with with technologists that had, you know, fairly, you know, that sort of came out of the sixties, um, had that kind of, uh, you know, Ted Nelson liberatory technology dream. Mm -hmm. And they felt that that was their calling is that they were, they were working on the grand project of democratizing these technologies so that it wasn't just the large corporations or the military that had access to them. And, you know, for me and other people have written about this, right. Is like, it's, it's such an interesting, study in how progressive ideology gets co-opted by market forces, right? So that, you know, by the time, so I worked with what you might call sort of some of the first and then certainly second generation of Silicon Valley pioneers. I was fortunate to be a very junior member of the research staff with these people. Um, And, you know, they, they had really great intentions. Of course. And, in conversation with them now, you know, you know, they're some of them anyways are like horrified, of course, that that, you know, that information wants to be free, kind of emancipatory sort of approach to things, yep. you know, became this license, became a cover, yep. um, you know, to just steal everybody's data and use it to your own, use it to your own profit. Yep. So I, I think that, that that lesson, that is a very particular kind of ideology that has been normalized as as a progressive stance yeah when it's when it's not and we we see the consequences of that now and that's that's one of the most exciting areas of the the working group and and similar work is like we were talking about before suzanne came on was you know holding up models and not models to copy but models for inspiration yep yep right or how these sorts of issues could be uh, better solved so that there is a reciprocal relationship that people do have the ability to opt in, you know? Um, I mean, it's so interesting, right? You know, Facebook is going after Apple right now because 
because Apple, the newest, the newest iOS release has a functionality in it that you can go and see for any app that's on your, on your iOS device, you can go and see what information it collects from you mm-hmm. now. And so Facebook is having a fit, of course, <laughs> and, you know, trying to turn it into a thing about how this is going to hurt small businesses. And Apple's like, we're just right. what you're doing. So what's the problem? Um, Battle and, you know, and obviously there's bigger corporate interests that are at stake as well, right? It's not that Apple's the white knight mm-hmm. in sure. all of this, but it shows how, in a certain way, I think how deeply embedded the assumption that data wants to be free yep. and that individuals don't own their data has become embedded within that culture, but also it shows how necessary that approach is to the economic underpinning of the whole industry. 100%. Right? So between that, the the need for the data for advertising and then the need for the data to feed the machine learning algorithms, right? This is a, this is if, you know, as we tighten these things up, you know, this is a this is a possibly terminal threat to these business models. Hundred percent, right? So we've seen this already, of course, in the reaction to the, you know, the European data laws mm-hmm. tightening things up and things like that. So, you know, anything we can do to to pull that back and say, okay, wait a second, we need to we need to get to a place where we recognize that the person's data is there is you know is theirs to dispose of. Right. I don't want to call it their property because that's still engaging this whole system. Sure. Right. Um, And that if things are going, if things are being handled in a good way, then part of that decision about how to dispose of it is going to be done in consultation with your community. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, it's it's wonderful to hear you both talk about this and and honestly i yeah it it feel it feels like a a, a nice beautiful warm uh, warm spring shower it's so refreshing uh yeah no because I, I, I just qualify that a little bit more and also your context of actually being in the valley at that time is really instructive um and 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 i'm of course also fascinated with that period um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for for the same reasons, and don't attribute much malice to many of the individuals involved, you know. But that's again to go to your. Well, to there your, is that saying: the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, <laughs> the, the uh, uh, you know, but the the uh, but again, this speaks to the to the to the point of like looking at the protocol level, right? It's like even yeah, you know, your good intentions when you only have so many uh, available options uh, might also just just turn sour. But the yeah, but I remember, for example, at that conference specifically talking, um, you know, so in our in our corners this kind of freedom of information ideology, you also get to see how, in a sense, that can be used kind of as a cudgel towards certain marginalized communities. So one of the most fascinating things I found, like speaking at that conference was, I was there talking about Google, like the history of sampling, and of course the complications involved with that related to like hip hop and certain musics that were coming out of black communities in the United States, et cetera. And I was raising examples where in actuality, if you go back to, um, if you go back like decades at the advent of digital sampling, for example, there were so many black people basically from the jazz community um, later, you know, black people in Detroit from the, uh, from the techno community who were really opposed to the idea of anyone just being able to take what they do and make money from it without being able to pay them. Right. Like you have like Miles Davis and other like serious luminaries coming out in public and being like, Hey, wait a second. Like, we made this, you know, we put a lot of time and skill into creating the work that we do. You can't just take it. Um, and it's really interesting in retrospect how also these kind of, these freedom of information kind of ideologies 
are used almost as kind of like a default, how would you like they're represented in some cases as like being the default position for all marginalized people too, through, I think a very, like a very thin, thin, there's a very thin justification, but it's generally kind of like often like white, powerful people saying, you know, Basically, saying to well, yeah. this is specifically in music. This is specifically. So I don't in, know if this is happening in other no, no, media no, no, realms, no. but this is something we come across in music. Yeah, well, specifically, and I've heard it come out of people's mouths. For example, that like, oh no, you know, well, for example, you know, if you look at like African diasporic music, um, people there are really cool with the idea of music being this kind of community commodity. Ergo, we shouldn't have to pay black people for the music that they that they create in a sampling context, you know, and that, that conflation, that very tricky conflation, I think can get a lot of people confused. Um, and, and as we say before, sorry, I'm rambling out of enthusiasm, but like, but as we said before, you know, unless you kind of figure out that protocol, that, that, that core bias, um, it's going to be like, once you add like accelerant to that through building new uh, systems, whether it be through machine learning, or you mentioned like kind of crypto, like distributed ledger kind of systems. Um, As you say, from that point on, everything is a patch, like everything is a bandaid. And it feels like getting that, that core principle in place and saying, no, actually like, you know, people should have the right to say what, you know, to determine, uh, you know, where the stuff that they produce either individually or as a community or as a people, um, goes like you know they should have some means to negotiate over the value that they produce in those systems unless we have that in place we're in trouble i I mean i feel like it's actually quite grave actually um yeah excuse me for ranting but it's it's it yeah it's nice to talk about this (laughs) you brought up a couple things that are they're interesting i mean firstly that well i think in the music industry we haven't really spoken too much about music but you know there's not a lot of native people in the music industry they're, yep, yep. they're really, really, really cut out. And I think that we maybe we could have this conversation if uh, we were, you know, invited to actually have voices. And it's that. So that's, I mean, we, we can't we can barely have that conversation with yep, yep. musicians. And that's kind of, that's kind of the extent. And then we've got a really, our tiny little bubble of experimental indigenous, like music makers doing like the wildest, most unpalatable um, stuff, which I'm super proud of, but uh, you know, beyond- I want to hear that. <laughs> beyond that, we're not really invited, you know, and um, yep. and so can't really have that. But you know, some things that you brought up are that when we we're talking about the root problem, I really, really do mean non like, communication with the non-human and like mm-hmm. actual communication and respect and valuing. And if the, the reason I return to stones um, in the Lakota practice, not just because stones are such an easy way to think about them being melted into our computational devices and the real horrors of mining, it, mm-hmm. you know, the, is because stones are so inanimate and so ownable to, mm-hmm. um, but it, that is, it really does not work for our, our values um, as Lakota people, you know, it's uh, communication with and through objects is a, is a given. So it, it's so different. It's almost in, in, like I can barely describe it. Um, so that kind of, if you expand that idea a little bit to ownership, then you can think of many examples of things that absolutely cannot be owned and cannot even be compensated for. So if we talk, start to talk about compensation for IP mm-hmm. or something, like there, some things cannot be compensated for. There is no uh, amount 
of reciprocity in the world that can actually trade. And you can see that in political things like the way that the Lakota have never accepted monetary compensation for the Black Hills. It's not owned, mm-hmm. it's not for sale. There's just nothing that can be done that can mm-hmm. make that okay. And you see that across the world, fight after fight for sovereignty. Uh, when it feels like a discussion about ownership, it's not about ownership. It's about letting the non-human uh, have its own sovereignty as well. So then when we expand this even further and we're talking about indigenous frameworks, we're not talking about indigenous frameworks just for our communities. We're also talking about ways that people outside our communities can learn from these frameworks and hopefully apply them in a good and reciprocal and uh, uh, consult- consultative way uh, to systems that are being built now. So, you know, the example I give in the paper is about the example of the sweat lodge, but there were other examples that didn't make it in the paper, this Hawaiian net example, which was really beautiful. And then we actually did have a really long conversation. I think uh, I was work- trying to work through the ideas of, with um, Caleb Moses, um, who's a Maori natural language processing mathematician uh, about autonomous vehicles and kind of the basic question of like who, okay, so the autonomous vehicle comes to a cross, a crosshair, a crosshair crossing a, a uh, what's it called? A fork of the road. An intersection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who's going to get, who's going to be killed? Um, is it going to be A or B, you know? And, you know, mm-hmm. it comes immediately uh, different when we say, all right, it's gonna, is it going to kill me, a Lakota woman, or a rare buffalo? <laughs> and, oh, wow. And I'm like, well, if I, if I built it, maybe I'd choose the rare buffalo, you know, um, if this, you know, I'm almost extinct, uh, you know what I mean? And it's you mm-hmm. playing that game all the way. So even building the autonomous vehicle would be a, it's a fun uh, mind, mind game. One concept that's come up a few times, and I, I'm hoping that someone can kind of fill it out for me a little bit, just for my personal knowledge, is this concept of an indigenous approach to IP. What does that mean? Can someone define that or, or fill that in for me a little bit? Well, it, it's well, I, what I was going to mention, talk, react to in the previous comment. Sure. Comment, yeah, yeah. Thing which I think is appropriate for this too, or for my swing at it. Anyways, is that, you know, there's a reason why we call the workshops Indigenous Protocol and AI and not Indigenous Knowledge or Indigenous Epistemology or Indigenous Ontology mm-hmm. and AI. And that is that, um, you know, what we came back to again and again in our conversations around making cable machines, but that also was, was an ongoing discussion when we got the working group together, is the importance of protocol, right? So that the, the idea being that you know, if you have protocol or you develop protocol that is that is aimed at for the well-being of the community, let's just say that for now, um, then you can use that in a number of different ways to help you make decisions about about these questions of, for instance, like who owns this data or who owns mm-hmm. this story, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lots of indigenous communities have very well-developed protocols around this. Some of them have been lost because of colonization. So they're being rebuilt. You know, they're developing new protocols, you know, as, as, as we all move uh, into the future. But that, for me, part of protocol is, is it's about mindfulness, right? It's about really having, having in place an expectation of and a procedure for thinking through things carefully, 
Mm-hmm. And that's why, and you're going to think through them carefully from the standpoint of what you think is good for your community. And so that's why we, we can end up with, you know, some communities who, who are okay taking their really precious cultural data and embodying it in an, into an AI ante, mm-hmm. right? Because they have confidence in their protocols that they can do that in a way that's going to serve their community. Um, and then some communities saying, no way, right? Um, and that's because, say, their cultural framework, there's something repugnant just from their cultural standpoint about putting this knowledge into a non, I don't know, it could be a non-human, it could be a non-sentient being. There's different ways maybe, you know, that the, that the objection comes about. Um, uh, but the key, the really key thing is, is the community developed that approach themselves. Yep, yep. And so that's the thing about the, for me, about the IP question, right, is to localize that decision-making property or decision-making process so that the communities can decide, you know, each community can decide for itself what it wants to do. And it can decide, you know, also as a part of weighing the trade-offs, you know, between what they gain and what they lose, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So different communities might say, look, you know, we're actually willing to take the risk that, um, I don't know that some of our health information might be sort of swept up um, into wider systems. If the benefit to us is, you know, a, a, a set of therapeutics that that address, um, you know, some kind of, of sickness or illness that runs through the community because of their genetic heritage, mm-hmm. right? That's a decision that a community could make. Mm-hmm. All right. And there might be another community. I mean, there might be one community that's like, this is worth it to us. And there might be another community that's like, it's not worth it to us. So we're going to forego that benefit because we see that the, that the damage it does is not, the, is not what we want to pay. And this is the thing I think is really hard because, of course, all our, you know, all our governance regimes are based on, the, uh, you know, we want to make one rule for everybody. Yep. Right. This is absurd. We got, <laughs> yeah, we, we got to make one rule for everybody because that's the only way things will be fair. Yeah. Right. But this is also that process of, of, you know, kind of radical questioning of, of, you know, definitions of quality, definitions of fairness um, that that get raised when you start thinking about these things. Um, and, you know, coming from an indigenous perspective, you know, one of the constant things, of course, is, OK, we've been on the bad end of a whole series of judgments about what is normal. Yeah. Right. And what is the, what is the natural way to do this? And this is where, you know, I think the, the, the kind of the liberal impulse behind many of these like declarations of, you know, AI rights and responsibilities, the, you know, the one done here in Montreal, but these various other kind of ethical frameworks is most of them grow out of this liberal con- concept of, of individual responsibility. Yep. Right. Individual mm-hmm. rights and responsibility mm-hmm. and just make a whole bunch of assumptions about what is the progressive right way of dealing with these things that are that are not necessarily applicable to indigenous communities. Yep. Right. So how do you create IP regimes, you know, um, and then also you take a step back from that and you're like, ah, you're like, oh, sc- you know, I'm already screwed because I'm talking about intellectual property. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So we're already we've already conceded mm-hmm. the starting. Point. Yep. Um, and that starting point is, you know, several miles, you know, further down the road than actually where we want to start. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so then, you know, so then what is the language? And I think a, a part, a big part of the working group and the position paper is, is what you're seeing is people trying to work out what the languages might be. Yep. Right. What are the different ways that we might approach this? You know, how do we reconcile um, some of the things that we might want to keep <laughs> from technology development? Yep. You know, and I think the health thing is really, really important example. I, and I come back to often and Suzanne mentioned, uh, you know, missing and murdered Aboriginal uh, Indigenous women, mm-hmm. um, you know, as another. It's sort of like there are ways in which this these technologies could be enormously helpful to our communities. Absolutely. You know, and for me, that's where the optimism comes from. Yep. So how 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 do we how do we um, sort of work with our knowledges so that we can get those benefits that we want. And usually that means, you know, and, and for me, that means we, us working with the technology and creating the technology, yep. you know, not acting as, as a, as a resource to these other companies um, because they want to enrich their data set. Yeah. I mean, first off the, the fact that you'll address and it, I can only imagine it becomes it becomes all the more clear when you're dealing with with quite marginalized communities. This idea that like a one size fits all anything is quite absurd and seems to be kind of like the march of the last twenty years of kind of like consumer technology, right? Um, which I mean, the good news about that is I do feel like it that is that glass has cracked quite a bunch. You know, um, like for example, I'm actually quite involved in the um, yeah, the decentralized kind of Web three space. Um, and one of the kind of advantages of that, in a sense, is this kind of renewed emphasis in sovereignty of certain communities. So, you know, if, if the last 20 years of like the platform economy has been this kind of pretense of trying to present one, you know, one kind of approach for everybody, of which there have been some successes and uh, 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 of course, right, some utilities have, have spawned from that. If anything, like with the Web3 space, um, a lot of the optimism I might, I might uh, 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 put in that is you know, the ability for communities to kind of fork off <laughs> and say, okay, well, actually, you know, the benefit of like Web3 tech, for example, is the ability to be able to use shared infrastructure protocols, but then build your own stuff on top of that, right? So when you mention example, the examples like with, with healthcare, right? Like, you know, the ability for there to be large centralized data, uh, a large centralized process that enables us to identify cancer quicker. Everybody's going to want a piece of that and it's possible to both do that and also regulate yourselves within smaller councils so there isn't just one central body um, uh, uh, controlling controlling everything um uh, 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 and so yeah that that aspect is 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 a uh, uh, is is really compelling for my own interests i i on the topic I want, one thing i wanted to 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 ask on the topic of kind of like ip ownership and specifically um what you mentioned earlier suzanne that, that you know, in some cases, the idea of anything being able to be owned is 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 just not something people are into. Um, I wonder, have you have you ever heard of a project called Terra Zero? No. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, I, it's very niche. Yeah, it's very niche, actually. <laughs> um, and and to be honest, at this point in time, it's kind of it's in this realm of like uh, uh, more concept than 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 material. Um, but it's a, it's a group of artists who are working here in Berlin, actually, um, on a system largely inspired by um, 
you know, certain legislative uh, uh, developments in New Zealand that allowed for certain rivers to be given, you know, personhood. Um, Basically, they're attempting to think of a system that might allow for um, a forest, for example, this was the first example they have, to own itself. And through the application of like certain sensor tech or whatever, um, also to give that forest the ability to negotiate on its own. Um, so the idea being that you could through, you know, checking oxygenation levels, the, the forest could basically negotiate in its own interests, um, like how much something could be knocked down or, or whatever, like how much it could be logged for a particular period of time, how many people were allowed to, to move through. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of interesting, and it reminds me a little bit of, of of some of the stuff you all have been talking about in the sense of like having an optimistic vision of stuff where you might actually be able to implement some really smart, quite useful uh, technologies, but with the foundational principle there being number one, like no human owns this this forest, the forest owns itself, and yeah, like creating some kind of a I would say kind of radical conditions on the implementation of that tech. Yeah, I mean that that would be amazing if we could get there very quickly. I mean, it's, it's to- everything is possible. I mean, everything is possible. I think that there are a lot of really amazing indigenous lawyers. There's, I can't actually keep trying to remember um, his name. He's a he's a I think he's Hopi. He's a lawyer who works with Dylan Robinson, who just wrote Hungry Listening. Um, he's a, a indigenous ethnomusicologist, and I don't know how to find it. Um, I I heard him speak once, and he talked about. Uh, song um, and law and because um, one of the big problems for indigenous law was without written language uh, there the colonial impulse was to completely ignore our our laws and say we didn't even have laws yeah. and the there are there, there are very many ways in which we use the word protocol it's a very general term though but we also mean actual law and there are a lot of amazing indigenous lawyers who are going after this and trying to do that and i do see i do imagine when we ask communities what your needs are if a need is an ai that can engage and and help enact and enforce our laws uh our traditional laws, that would be amazing. But you, I always have to remind myself, you know, of course, this is, we've talked about how kind of hopeful this project is, but if the, if our governments do not want, the state does not want us to have something, they, they can do anything to prevent it. They, they kill us and they send militarized police forces. We said we wanted clean water at Standing Rock and that was an absolute no-go. Yeah. And they immediately, the pipe burst, you know? exactly what we said would happen did happen so when they want something they take it so um i think that i really admire um indigenous lawyers in their creative attempts to combat a lot of these things because it is a generally a losing battle but you know i think i think we are building the capacity to use these tools to try to defend some of these laws or hold the government accountable to the laws that they agreed to. I mean, even treaties. I mean, we could go on about treaties forever, about we made these treaties that we, we were promised things mm-hmm. and they are not all not upheld. <clears throat> so if you're not going to even uphold a nation and nation treaty, who says you're going to uphold a nation to a uh, river, you know, <laughs> agreement. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, uh, 
well, of course, in no, but also in the in in the instantiation of these kind of working groups, you're, you're creating the platform that makes hypothetically would would make that kind of thing possible, right? Because um, I guess you're still at at the stage of um, of gathering all the interested parties uh, before anything might prospectively be built. Well, I I mean I think we're at the stage where there's a number of kind of different things growing out of it. So some people, I think some people are thinking about that. Uh, that's that's part of what I'm focused on. I think some people are are focused on sort of understanding their community needs better, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, to really kind of get deeply into thinking about where this, these systems might be beneficial. So yeah, I, there's, there's a couple different ways the work is going depending on who's, on who's doing it. Um, you know, there's an indigenous and AI uh, group now uh, founded by Michael Running Wolf and Caroline Running Wolf, which is their, what they're doing is, you know, kind of providing support and solidarity to indigenous people working within the industry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Working on machine learning, you know, within like at Facebook and Amazon and these big companies, you know, so it's, it's, it's fed into a number of different ways of, of addressing these issues. That's so, what, but for me, yeah, that's, I'm interested in trying to figure, trying to prototype something to see what that process, really to see what the process is like first, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. what kind of, kind of collaborative process between community and, system builders is possible uh, and then seeing if it's actually practical to build something along these I mean because to me it's still an open research question whether we can really we can actually make this kind of technology with its genealogy compatible with in a deep way with indigenous protocol absolutely right? mm-hmm. but that's a fascinating research project I mean I'd, I'd be really really curious to learn you know how, how that might come together and, and it's it's really it's also really encouraging to to hear that you know your focus in this case is like yeah the next step is to like let's try and build this thing you know that that's really cool so what would you say are the steps in that process i'm really curious because this kind of goes back to that bifurcation of the conversation that we had earlier that you know getting down to the very kind of like root of the issue like what are the kind of first steps in understanding how to kind of yeah, I mean, is it just like starting from zero or is it kind of like a comparative? I mean, what what's even the methodology for, for this kind of approach? Well, that's what we're figuring out. I mean, the way that I'm going about it is trying to pull together, and we prototyped this once uh, with uh, some, some AI folks at MIT. You know, so how do we get, how do we create a context where uh, people building this technology and the people coming with a cultural knowledge and a cultural need, right, where they can have a productive conversation for each other, um, meaning that, you know, the 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 indigenous folks, the community folks, are not going to stick around for a conversation where the benefit is not clear to them, nor should they, right? And the the system builders aren't either, mm-hmm. right? They're not going to just do this work out of the goodness of their heart. They're certainly not going to do it in a sustained way. Right. They might sort of parachute in for one or two conversations. Yep. So the, the workshop that we did um, as part of a larger thing at, uh, with some folks at MIT, my model at the moment is, OK, so, you know, find in conversation with people, <laughs> you know, find where there are um, there's some interest in addressing these issues, mm-hmm. bring in, you know, bring in people who um, are you know culturally grounded and or you know grounded in the language? It usually means um, means the same thing, um, and um, you know have them articulate 
what they see is the potential, mm-hmm. right? In conversation. And then, and then talking to the system side, the system builder side, finding out what they're like, where they see the problem. So part of what I try to do is I try to present, I try to figure out how to express um, the, the kind of sort of the community challenges mm-hmm. in a way that it's an interesting engineering challenge. Yep. yep, mm-hmm. um, yep, yep. And that's tricky. It's tricky to do without doing damage maybe sometimes to the cultural side. Um, it's tricky to do, you know, with people who've been socialized to, you know, think about anything that has to do with culture or whatever, both as not their job yeah. and in some way of secondary importance to the real work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's part of the method is trying to figure out what that language is, then sort of talking to them separately hopefully finding some points of contact and then bringing everybody into the room together and just sort of talking, Yep. yep you yep. know, not talking with a goal like, Oh, we're here today to figure out a new piece of technology, or we're here today to figure out how to do, how you should do things differently. It's like, let's just talk about what our concerns are in our own particular domains and see if we can find ways to overlap those mm-hmm. so that we end up with a, with a, a challenge that's interesting and beneficial to both sides. And I think that's going to change, you know, so the one that we did in, with MIT was with Scott Benison Abandon, who, uh, who Suzanne mentioned earlier, who's Anishinaabe, and he brought in um, the, the language expert that he works with. Uh, and we talked with one of the, the automated speech recognition people at, um, at MIT. And, you know, and there turns out that there is some real overlap of concern, particularly around machine translation um, and, and speech recognition and, you know, what happens to a language when it gets computationalized, mm-hmm. when it gets formalized. And there's all sorts of abusive things that happen to a language <laughs> when it gets computationalized for the reasons that we've spoken about before, mm-hmm. you know, about the will to abstraction. And so you can, you can start to sketch out a common area of concern, right? And then the next step is like, okay, what do you actually do about that? Um, and, you know, so that's going to be another set of, of I think, tests to try to figure out what's the actual process for doing that. And at the same time, I think that the group that made the, the Huaki'i app in the, in the working group, mm-hmm. uh, so Michael Running Wolf, Caroline Running Wolf, Noe Arista, uh, Caleb Moses, and um, Joel Davis. So a big part of what they're writing about there is they're like, okay, so this is, so first of all, they're like, we're super excited because this is the first time we've been on a development team where it's all indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to actually think both about the process and the outcome. So how we go about designing this piece of technology and then how we actually build it. Yep. And so I think there's a really, they've set a really great example that I draw upon and I think other people can draw upon about how do you incorporate, for instance, community feedback? How do you go about yep. assessing um, who represents the community? Right. Who gets to speak for the community or who gets to have an, you know, who has a validated opinion about what the community might want or need, mm-hmm. you know, and then how do they work together? Right. So that there, you know, so there's there's, you know, uh, you know, a Hawaiian, um, uh, a Cheyenne, uh, a Maori folk person, um, somebody, an, an Aboriginal person from Australia. Um, and I'm forgetting somebody. Um you know, so there's five, actually five different cultural frameworks that are represented in that group. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about, um, a, you know, addressing what those differences is? And in that case, you know, they, the, the elegant solution was like, we're here in Hawaii, right? 
And so we should see if we, and we have, uh, you know, Hawaiian, you know, participation. So maybe we should make a language app that deals with Hawaiian, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, try to sort of be responsive to the context that we're in, you know, but then there's a whole bunch of other decisions. So I, I think it's um, the, 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 taking that methodology, these, these workshops I'm talking about, those methodologies, you know, I think I'm hoping that we can find different paths to do that. You know, also the Maori folks, um, uh, the, the Maori group, uh, Peter Lucas um, and uh, Keone, uh, so Keone is actually Hawaiian, but he, he works down there um, with Peter Lucas. You know, they they have 20 plus years of, in their community, they have 20 plus years of thinking really seriously about their data sovereignty. Mm -hmm, right. So they have protocols um, associated with how to deal with the with the data from their communities. So there are pockets of examples out there. And I think part of the challenge is, is how to support those so they grow and they thrive, you know, but also how to bring them in conversation with each other so we can learn from each other. And for me, I think that's the next stage of the working group. You know, the first stage is really like, you know, identifying if there's a common set of concerns articulating some possible first responses. And now I think what you see happening is people are like focusing on like particular responses from their standpoint. Um, but I still think we have a lot to learn by staying in conversation with each other about how we're, how our own particular ways of carrying this work forward are, are unfolding. Yeah. I mean, what a network really. It, yeah. I mean, the you know, on the practical side for me as a, as a, somebody partially trained, um, you know, in computer science, like for me, I'm like, it's like, I want to start with, I mean, there was already a project that we helped support a new out of Hawaii of, of, um, you know, uh, creating a, a Hawaiian language version of C sharp. Hmm. Right. So the next step is like, okay, let's write a language from, from scratch, hmm. you know, from in Hawaiian language, and then let's do an operating system. Right. So then that there's that other path, which is that kind of functional path of like, okay, how do you build the tool chain? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you, and this goes back to, I think, part of what, you know, Suzanne's talking about and how to build anything ethically too, right? Is we've got to think about the tools that we're using to build these things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so one starting point is like, okay, well, let's build them so that, so that if it's a Hawaiian group that's developing this, they can do all of that within Hawaiian language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yep. I love that idea. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this, this, that you're working on this ability to translate community need to an engineering challenge and how insanely difficult that is. And maybe it's one of the most important and pressing kind of um, capabilities of our time. Um, so being able to develop a methodology around this is something that could have application even beyond this working group or even beyond this community or project. Yeah, totally. It's Very cool. Yeah, hopefully um, I'll finish my dissertation sometime <laughs> this decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no pressure. No, no. <laughs> yeah, not to put the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> would, would be pretty cool if you fixed it, but, you know, like. <laughs> no, I just find it, I find it inspiring. <laughs> First off, like, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is really wonderful. Um, I'm looking forward to actually keeping tabs with the group. Is there, is there a way that um, we can share with other people to maybe follow what's going on with what you're doing? Uh, so there's there's the indigenous-ai.net mm -hmm. website, 
and we I've just returned focus to it so that in the new year it's going to be updated with news and events. Great. So the different projects that different people are doing that are related to this, um, including people who weren't part of the working group but are you know but are doing work that somehow resonates, um, you know, with what uh, with what we're doing. So I think that's one way. Um, there's the new group I said, Indigenous in AI, and that's actually Indigenous dash in dash AI. Mm-hmm. Or no, no, there's no dashes. It's all oh. it's all run yep. together. Indigenous in AI. Um, I think that's a dot org. Um, and so those are two ways. I you know I don't know Suzanne if the radical AI people you know have something that um, they have a project called Resistance AI. Resistance AI, um, yeah. Formerly Radical AI, and uh, there is. That's a group that meets on Slack, and I think if you search for us, you can find us. I'll find it. <laughs> Great, wonderful, um, and yeah, and I think uh, I'm also going to have to hit you up for uh, all this wild experimental music that I haven't yet heard. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you. I think maybe you guys know um, uh, Colin Self, who's a, I went to went to Bard with. You're joking! Um, oh no. wow, awesome! <laughs> do this because uh, because of i i know um i know colin and oh this was yeah yeah it seems like you guys should have another one with suzanne (laughs) yeah (laughs) i know well i mean colin colin's like family be there i want to be because yeah. i just want to listen yeah <laughs> you're very welcome to join jason <laughs> yeah colin just celebrated his birthday at our house a couple days ago oh, <laughs> yeah within the league within the legal framework it of, was, yeah, yeah it was yeah, totally... socially distanced and everything <laughs> yeah no colin colin uh yeah because we we uh, for, for jason who maybe is this is completely baffling uh colin colin tours with us quite often he's a very close collaborator and and okay. just like a an alien total alien human special person (laughs) Suzanne that's amazing I didn't why didn't I know that from the beginning (laughs) (laughs) to mention it you know but yeah I mean I'm because I'm an experimental musician and and hopefully that's what the dissertation will do is hopefully my um, I'll be able to make like collaboratively collaboratively make in body like instruments that are meant to be worn on the body that interact machine learning and make music with like in a community setting so that's like a huge part of the of that process trying to like unite the experimental music stuff and the instrument making and the indigenous protocols and make it all somehow somehow make it all work together it's coming together i can tell sounds good yeah that sounds really good please yeah okay so we'll we'll have to we'll have to catch up we'll have to catch up on that as as it as it uh as it develops um okay so so because you don't have very much time left we have a question we ask everybody and we'd like to ask you both individually, which is um, what does interdependence mean to you? Hmm. <laughs> I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, if interdependence is, it has some relationship to the term independence, I, I guess it implies that there's a, that, that you can only be independent when you're, you know, relying on other people like a group group effort but i i think that it probably means to me that it takes uh it takes the like the relations with um all of our all of our relations all of our kin all of our um community that both the seen and unseen uh both 
you know, the living and the, the non-living, the seven generations idea and, and to especially the non-human, those, and, and, you know, any being that is not being respected or is not being uplifted. So I think that's probably what my, my answer would be to interdependence. So that's what, that's all those relations are required to, to, to maybe if independence to me means sovereignty, then that's what it would take. That's a great answer. Thank you. Tough act to follow, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it makes me think about um, how the, the need to kind of retain complexity. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the need to sort of recognize all those relations and understand the responsibilities that I might have to them or one might have to them. And, but also to think about how, the, how they're interacting with each other. So how these responsibilities and these relationships are interacting with each other and particularly how they're interacting when you're not around, hmm. right? Yeah. Um, or when you're not proximate, you're always around, yeah. right? It's just sort of kind of a question of how proximate you are to what's happening in a particular set of relationships at any particular time. So, you know, being mindful of those, those relationships, how they, how they depend upon each other and how we can retain the complexity and operate within that complexity and also not be paralyzed by it yep. um, because the complexity can also be paralyzing. And part of the reason why people simplify things, right. Is it makes it easier to act in some ways. Yep, 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 so yep. how do we, how do we act while we're keeping these things in mind? And that's, that's goes back to the protocol question. That's part of what protocol helps us with. Mm-hmm. Is is keeping those things in mind even as we act in the world? Yeah, it's a rails. That's also a great answer. Yeah, those mm-hmm. answers worked well interdependently with each other. Very true. Very <laughs> complimentary. It seems like you all have worked together before. <laughs> well, this has been really fun and informative, and there are so many little notes that I wrote down to dig into further, and we will have a lot of links for our listeners as well. So, thank you for being so generous with your time with us today. Genuinely, and yeah, and I hope that, uh, yeah, we either cross paths in Montreal or Berlin at some point. It would be very nice to say hello in person. Yes. <laughs> yes, it would, it would be. This was a pleasure. Thank you for your, for your time and your good minds. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, really. Yeah, keep up. I'm really looking forward to seeing where all this goes and really appreciate your time and hope you have a, uh, uh, you know, uh, survive the winter. <laughs> <laughs> It's minus it's minus fifteen here today. Oh my! Oh wow! So we can't complain. This is oh. a, one of those rare conversations where we can't complain about being cold. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Might be wet, but you could be really cold, Suzanne. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very warm here for my idea of winter now. I'm very used to the, ne- the constant negative thirteen. <laughs> that's yeah. That's a whole other conversation. That's, that's, I'm, I'm I'm never used to it. Uh, but yeah, look, thank thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to get to know you a little, and yeah, I hope uh, yeah, I hope we uh, our our paths cross again. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah. Bye. Thanks all. Thanks all. I'm gonna stop recording now. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.